We're back to being a normal country. We're back to being a country. The British Dream Podcast. Join us. Powerful people. As we launch our despicable acts like these. And sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. Hello and welcome to the British Dream, home for dark thoughts and today sunny-ish skies. We're sat outside the voice office watching our colleagues going out for their daily veggie prep injection. I'm Simon Childs, home affairs editor at vice.com. We've got Angus Harrison. All right. Shirin Kale. Hi Simon. And Johan Koshi. Hello. This week we're talking Facebook Live, avoiding the question, but first, the greatest political track since the last Dan Hodges think piece, the Conservative Manifesto. It means making Britain a country where everyone has the chance to go as far as their hard work will take them. Try to calm down. Strengthen my hand as I fight for Britain. And behave like an adult. It was always going to happen. The Tories launched their manifesto today. Anti-social care, denying children hot food and cracking down on immigration. A real stop to penny-pinching racists. The Conservatives have made a few pledges to workers. We'll get into that in a sec. I think first we should talk about the strange, like, funereal graphic design of the thing yeah absolutely it's a, they're, they're very much breaking with the uh kind of tradition of recent years to put silhouettes of people jumping in the air and things like that inside your manifesto and you're like citizens smiling and holding hands this is very much yeah austere. it should be like fluffy pictures of people exactly right no this is fully just yeah as you say brochure for an upmarket funeral home hmm. sign the contract the end of the world type stuff i suppose a lot of manifestos tend to look like um pamphlets for retirement homes so maybe this is just progression from that from the retirement home to the actual funeral now it's kind of logical progression yeah that's true although they often look like university uh, brochures as yeah. well I don't think you get, like a prospectus yeah maybe this is like a prospectus for an incredibly elite boarding school um, I guess it does feel weirdly appropriate since a lot of the sort of meat of it does seem to be aimed at old people um, there's a lot of stuff about social care seemingly people are going to pay for that through remortgaging their house, is that right? Well, I think basically it's the case that you're going to have to pay for your social care now, but I mean it will come out of your estate after you die, which is pretty depressing. They're saying that, but it's a government's kind like that, if uh, your house is worth less than 100 grand, which is basically like no one in London, um, then you won't have to pay anything, but if your house is worth more than 100 grand, then after you die, that's going to be sold, and that's going to go back to, state, to the state to pay towards the cost of you being an old person in Tory Britain. Yeah, there's also talk of uh, financial products being sold as part of this re- uh, sort of remortgaging or re- refinancing of your house after you die. So it's a great opportunity for the city of London to sell these like complicated financial products, which will allow them to own part of the house again. It will end up just going back, back, back to the banks, really. Ian Duncan Smith was explaining it on BBC News this morning, and he said, well, really, this is all about enabling the market to look at products to help people invest so they can create a flexible savings regime. I mean, no one, no one listens to what he says and takes it seriously, but, I mean, really, this is, kind of, like, complete bullshit. This is a huge taxation, basically, on old people's wealth. That's when, you, when you're dying and you have dementia and you don't know how much your house is worth. <laughs> the, you want to be thinking about what's the greatest flexible savings regime I can enter into um, so I am not living in filth in the autumn of my life. But actually, this is really interesting because uh, the Tories have like historically really protected old people when it comes to like going into the election campaigns. Old people obviously vote Tories. So the fact that the Tories are 
basically like stripping away a huge package of services that affect old people like they're also getting rid of winter fuel payments for rich pensioners which is I mean kind of a joke that they get it to be honest but the fact that they're doing this just shows how emboldened they are yeah I think it's interesting with the whole old people thing like uh, there's a certain view of the whole electoral system and the Tory parties that they're somehow like beholden to old people and like I mean they just look to old people for electoral legitimation every few years but like their interests aren't necessarily with old people they're just like with capital and this is this is like a good way of renewing a whole sway of markets for private healthcare and for the housing market i mean it's like that's ultimately what they're interested in absolutely and we also shouldn't uh, we shouldn't homogenize old people as well like we're talking about two there are two different types of old people we're talking about here which is like the vulnerable elderly versus the kind of Brexit voting middle class <laughs> old people that, that, that there's kind of the middle aged middle class there obviously is that, that, that Venn diagram is full of wonderful overlaps I mean like obviously what this shows is how much our social care system is collapsing around us and we have a huge ageing population so it, like, it is a massive problem but mm. there's also this like just like classic Tory proposal which is that um, like you should be able to take a year off work unpaid to look after your elderly relatives yeah. which they package up as some sort of like groundbreaking workers right but actually it's complete bullshit like basically what they're saying is the state can't afford to look after the elderly anymore but we are going to give you this incredible opportunity to work for free for a year gap year but <laughs> really... gap year in wiping asses basically yeah, exactly. yeah except not in the developing world just in your grandparents house yeah, yeah probably a lot less fulfilling or instagrammable Order! Order! have you seen her instagram Theresa Mays no it's extremely no. blue it looks like someone's done some really dodgy face tuning on her as well it's on instagram she's got like not a lot of followers it's kind of embarrassing I mean did you kind of engage with the classic instagram throbes you know the throwback Thursday to sort of workhouses or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, nah, it's just mostly her like a really luminously blue backdrop looking prime ministerial. Uh, what social media platform do you think Theresa May should be on? I think LinkedIn is the uh, social media platform of choice for Tories, right? Where she can very clearly display her strong and stable skill set on one side. Um, and there's no actual interaction with anybody else. It's quite simply just looking at her profile and taking that. I think maybe she's a, a mum's net poster. Yeah, Mummy I can see net. her getting deep into a message, a message thread on mum's net. I want to say Pinterest. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why. why. <laughs> I see Pinterest is kind of Lib Dem for some reason. I'm yeah. not sure. There's kind of like an abstract connection. So yeah, supposedly if the Tories are going further to the left or parking their tanks on Labour's lawn or whatever and um, what other workers rights stuff did they announce living wage increase yeah which is maybe sort of possibly a cut the living wage was a rebrand and now they've rebranded that rebrand to make it less than what they Osborne promised it would be that I mean flying the red flag basically yeah, yeah. so George Osborne said it was going to be nine pounds an hour and now they've an newly announced a new increase which will be 60% of the median income, which, depending on economic growth, may or may not be nine pounds. But it's a bold new promise to increase the minimum wage to less than what it was gonna be. Yeah, and in her speech today announced the manifesto, it was, funnily enough, she didn't mention those nuances, she just said, and we're increasing the living wage. Um, and so at least she's, she's able to frame it as, as a pro-worker policy. It's a very bold, um post-Thatcher Conservative government. It's got a very bold statement for a post-Thatcher Conservative government to be 
um, coming out with. However, it's kind of impossible to see where any of that is reflected in policy. I don't know, unless I missed things that you guys did see, but I didn't see how there is like a, where is this rejection of untrammeled free markets actually well, manifesting the, uh, itself? energy price cap thing. There are certain nods to more like state intervention than your sort of almost libertarian wing of the Conservative Party would have liked, I suppose. Well, they've also had committed to having, I think, a review on um, like workplace fights and the data economy, which actually is like quite progressive. I mean, it remains to be seen whether they'll actually do shit after the review. But there have been concerns for like a really long time about how Deliveroo and Uber and like tech firms like that are treating their employees. Well, they're going to have a review. Yeah, I think there's going to be a review into it. Yeah. I guess we'll big review. Yeah, I guess we'll <laughs> be holding our breath. A big lovely review. <laughs> a nice 75-page document yeah. that will solve everything. Do you guys have like coping mechanisms for Tory policies that you actually agree with, which does sometimes um, maybe happen? Possibly. Hurt, I don't yeah. know if it does. Fox hunt- I go fox hunting. <laughs> so I that's the one that I know that you're very passionate yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, you, you mean to cope with the sort of gnawing guilt of agreeing with the party that historically represents all the evil in the world? Yeah, yeah. I think like agreeing with the Conservatives is not like a huge pressing concern of mine at the moment. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not like passing around sleepless because of things of theirs I agree with. It's more the horrifying chasm we're falling into as a country that I need coping mechanisms for. Perhaps surprisingly, I've got a question in from Jeremy Corbyn of Islington. He says, Hello, Theresa May. As Prime Minister, you've served your elite friends. I can't live on £100 a month. It's just all away from me. It's a cliche that politicians never answer the question, but some cliches exist for a reason. Watching political programming can be like some weird fever dream where nobody can hear you. Let me introduce you to Peter Bull from the Universities of York and Salford. He's been looking into the art of question dodging. My research is principally concerned with language and communication, and in three particular contexts. So I've done a lot of work on uh, news interviews, on political speeches, and most recently on uh, Prime Minister's questions. Come hell or high water, whatever the deal on the table, we will be leaving the European Union. Can we agree to start with that the one thing that voters deserve in what you yourself have said is going to be a very, very important election is no sound bites? Strong and stable leadership. Is it vote? Vote Tory and get more public sector pay freezes. Yeah. Strong and stable leadership. Lots of ordinary nurses by the end of the week having to use food banks because they can't afford to pay for food. That is not the kind of country that you want to Strong run, and it? stable leadership. Common way also is um, acknowledging the question without answering it. So you can say, well, yeah, that's a very interesting question. But first of all, let me say, blah, 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 and then they just can do length. And you don't actually get back to the question that's actually asked. Professional interviews and journalists are getting better 
at um, tackling equivocation. I mean, there are a number of ways you can do this. I mean, there was the there was the famous incident of uh, Jeremy Paxman, who apparently asked the same question at least 12 times to Michael Howard, but he didn't actually get an answer, so it wasn't necessarily an effective way of doing it. One way is simply to be to be very persistent, and someone who has become very good at this, Andrew Marr, who will let the politician talk and then just come back to them and say, well, yes, well, that's very interesting, but you haven't actually answered my question, and he'll put the question to them again. And in doing so, he's highlighting the fact that they haven't answered it, so he's drawing the public's attention to the equivocation. But then there's a further variant on that, which is to interpret the equivocation. And Marr started doing this to say, well, I take it from the fact that you haven't answered my question, that the following is true. And so, in a way, the fact that the, the failure to answer the question by the politician, they're not allowed to get away with it, because then they put an interpretation on it of the fact they haven't actually answered the question. And we've also been monitoring answers to questions, uh, Prime Minister's questions, um, where, of course, the leader of the opposition is allowed to ask up to six questions with Jeremy Corbyn, who uses the full six questions. And we found there's actually a mean reply rate over all her PMQs of just 9%. So she's only answering 9% of his questions. And that's, that's spectacularly low. I've never seen anything as low as that from a politician. Honourable gentleman is so concerned about balancing the books. Why is it Labour Party policy to borrow half a trillion pounds and bankrupt Britain? I think a lot of people in the country, we like to see Jeremy Corbyn because he will answer a question. All I've seen of Theresa May is dodge, dodge, dodge. Strong and stable leadership. Would that include an opportunity to properly fund schools? Strong and stable leadership. Mainstream schools have to make three billion pounds in efficient Strong 20. Strong and stable leadership. Again. Have you come to proposals to help us on so And one of the commonest techniques we've noticed is that when asked a specific question, she will talk generally about the issue at hand without addressing the particular question. I mean, it was quite extraordinary when Andrew Marr asked her recently about nurses having to go to food banks um, to get enough to eat. And he asked her four times about that. And each time she replied without ever mentioning the word nurses once. She never talked about nurses. She just talked about generally about the state's economy and made no attempt to address the, um, uh, the, the particular issue at hand. And that's a very, very common um, technique used by Theresa May. May, May. Mr. Speaker. The difference is, we want... One of the major things, I think, with um, in political campaigns, uh, or traditionally, has been avoiding making mistakes. And what she's doing is she's got a commanding lead in opinion polls, and I think what the strategy is to avoid making mistakes. Now, clearly that's not the case um, with the Labour Party, who put forward this uh, radical and dramatic socialist um, platform, and they're not bothered about that. They've, they're taking a totally different strategy. So in a way, what we're what is interesting about this is we've got two totally different campaign strategies. It's not just 
It's not just the parties and the politicians who differ, but the actual campaign strategies are very, very different. Um, uh, critics of the Labour Party will say, it's all going to be like 1983 when the last time they ran a radical socialist campaign and they had an absolute disastrous election result. What's going to happen? Um, we you know, watch this space. We don't really know yet. So that was Peter Bull of the Universities of York and Salford. Um, Sharon, how do you think we should feel about the fact that Theresa May only answers the question 9% of the time at PMQs? I think it's really dark. I think it means that she's never really held accountable for what's going on. Like, if you don't answer a question directly, then it's it's really hard to have any sort of culpability. But I think also the problem is that the reason that she does this is because it works. It means that you never say anything bad, you never like mess up your message. But it's also the reason that people aren't voting, or they're voting for people like Trump, because politicians are never seen to actually say anything meaningful or real anymore. So when you have someone come through who apparently answers the question and apparently actually says stuff that's controversial or politically kind of incorrect, right? yeah, at least at least you you see somebody who's not just like quoting sound bites or talking in oxymorons or tautologies. It makes them appear like real when they're not really. So I, I think it's just a huge problem in our political discourse. I feel like it speaks to the weird gamification of interviews as well, where it's like the object isn't to have a discussion or reach any kind of meaningful conclusion the object is how what kind of linguistic gymnastics can I employ to successfully get through this without saying a particular sentence or a particular phrase because often that's it it's like I don't want to say that we are definitely going to do this or that we're definitely not going to do this therefore this becomes this bizarre like after dinner game where you kind of watch this person try and get through an entire round of an interview without saying a certain word which is just a kind of reductive and always quite insulting way for politicians to conduct themselves. Theresa May got accosted by a woman with uh, learning disabilities, I think it was this week, and uh, I didn't really have much to say to her, but it was kind of a a good moment because she was kind of, yeah, as you said, being held accountable at last. Yeah. Kind of seemingly more than she would on, like, Newsnight or anything. Yeah, I mean, it felt like an actual real moment in the election campaign, but, you know, what was surprising about that was how rare these moments have been. She's basically not even really engaging with the public. It's some sort of, like, glory tour and some sort of totalitarian state where, like, you only ever actually meet with people who support your views, you never meet with people who don't support your views, and obviously her being accosted by that woman would have been a blip that she probably reprimanded her press team for afterwards and it probably won't happen again. I guess, you know, if, if she's used to sort of artfully not answering any questions at PMQs, you kind of can't get away with that so much walking around in public because th- there's not these, like, rules of the game and, like, you get six, six questions and then you're done and you've got, like, a load of braying political supporters behind you. Normal members of the public aren't like, oh, fair enough, you dodged my question. They're just going to get, like, irate and it just sort of doesn't work in that way but I think yeah we shouldn't fetishize these moments like they never really do they really derail things anymore we're so inundated by it when like Nixon famously like sweat too much in his upper lip like during these debates in the 70s that when the time when like images on TV of our politicians probably had more import now we're just like inundated with them I really it's just it's just more Duffy felt like that. that that was a knock like quite a, that was a sizable knock to that you know that that idea that it was a real embodiment for some people, surely, that Labour was no longer looking out for certain. Yeah, and it, and it was, you know, and it was sort of instrumentalised to totally knock back Gordon Brown's campaign and put him on the defensive and make him apologise and stuff like that. Whereas Theresa May, it's like, I don't know, I think it was kind of a big deal on The Guardian, but like, you know, it's not like no one's like yammering on about it still in the way that maybe they ought to. <laughs> That's like the other thing that comes from this. It's like really notable that we can 
name the members of the public who have actually managed to uh, personally question politicians. Uh, we can remember, oh, do you remember the one member of the public who uh, actually confronted a politician right. in the last general election? Like, it's bizarre that with the population our size that there's you can name them. I wish that we still eggs people. I really miss like those I days. About yeah, I did yeah. like John like Prescott needs. Though. Yeah, I would love to see someone egg. I think, I think the first egging of the campaign is probably in the post. Who actually like, goes to a shop and buys a dozen eggs and is like, well, waiting for the next politician? You'd hope that they'd eat some of them. That's is true. there any other food stuffs you can use, or is it it's primarily eggs, isn't it? I like, was Gordon, Brown, be good. Gordon Brown, or was it John Prescott had a tomato thrown in him? I feel like I've got it. I feel like a rotten tomato is like a good traditional <laughs> sort of old English. Yeah, in the throw stocks him in the stocks. And, yeah. 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 <laughs> throw some rotten cabbages at his head. Oh, that yeah. would be so great. Yeah. Actually, a cabbage would really hurt. You could break uh, somebody's nose with a cabbage. So I'm digressing. Okay, well, I understand your point of view. I mean, I respectfully, I, mean, I, sort of, I, I thank you very much for all your question. As you were saying, you can like individually name people who have sort of physically confronted politicians at election times. But um, Theresa May sort of met the public via proxy this week with a weird Facebook Live where sort of thousands of red angry faces were swarming across the screen. Well, yeah, I guess people are generally angry about everything at all times on the internet. There's literally the like. You just go on like a YouTube link to a Frankie Knuckles song and like in the comments people are like suddenly talking about neo-Nazism and uh, <laughs> hate crimes. Yeah, so I, I don't think that's, yeah, I agree with you. that I don't think Facebook is a place to really get a reading of actual anger in society because it's pretty ubiquitous. That whole Facebook Live interview is very strange. It was odd, yeah. Robert Peston looked so bored and like depressed well he hasn't got, he hasn't worked out how to look at your phone and look at a person uh, so he spent the whole time looking down at the iPad which was giving him the recommended questions and genuinely like looked at her in the eyes like three times and even she looked a bit the whole thing was very she looked, she looked like she was talking to someone who really really wasn't listening like if you're at yeah. a party and someone starts openly rolling their eyes and like pretending to need to go to the toilet or whatever and it also meant that he let her get off, maybe we would have done this anyway, but he let, he let her get off with so many bad answers because he was just worried about the next, getting the next question up. At one point he's like, and we've got Greg from uh, Huddersfield, and he said, uh, it was cheaper for me to get two return flights to Dublin than it is for me to buy a train to London today. And so that's like, that's, that's now you're going to talk about the trains and the national rail, nationalisation, labour, what are you saying? And she literally said, we want to make it easier for people to use train company websites to find the best deal because I think that sometimes you know when you have the list it's sometimes hard to find off peak off peak what is it and and, and I was like oh, okay that is obscene that like what's going to happen now and he's like yeah um, and uh, Henry from Edinburgh yeah. I think and it was he kept on just going yep yep yeah yep like that was his attempt to kind of keep keep her knowing that he was definitely engaging with what he was saying yeah but just going yep yeah, like, 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 well, yeah, like exactly like when you're talking to someone and they're reading their phone. Yeah. And they're just going, uh-huh, uh-huh. We know Jeremy Corbyn trooped through the lobbies with Theresa May and UKIP to enact the most extreme choice. I guess we mustn't forget that uh, the Lib Dems also launched their manifesto this week um, in Oval Space, very fashionably of them. Uh, what do we make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of weird to see a manifesto launch in, in Oval Space, which, if you don't know it, is um, a multi-purpose event space in the heart of Hackney. Didn't we um, have our last like Christmas party there? We had our summer party summer there. Party. Yeah, it got quite messy actually. Um, I think that it is kind of cool. I feel like the Lib Dems are trying to uh, really appeal to the youth 
the youth vote, like what with their pledge to like legalise and regulate a cannabis market. Um, it was definitely kind of surreal watching like major political correspondents from the BBC reporting from Oval Space. It's, it, that's kind of a dysphoric thing to watch on TV. Um, yeah. Hopefully there weren't as many people doing drugs in the toilet as there normally are in Noble Space, but you never know. Bumping into some of those Lib Dems in the toilet, Tim Farr, you know, his pupils dilated, <laughs> he's touching you a bit too much, ask if you can roll a cigarette, and he's like... Can we say we- that? Can we imply that Tim Farron is a druggie? He does have a touch of the kind of like being a bit pilled up about it. There is <laughs> yeah. something quite sort of like manic and like a very over enthusiastic in everything he says. And like even when somebody's shouting at him saying like, you know, I hope you lose all your seats in the election, he still ends up going like, really good to talk to you. <laughs> there is something a bit smoking area about him, isn't there? It's like that annoying guy that keeps asking you for chewing gum and a cigarette. Yeah. It's like keeps asking you and forgets that he's asked you and then asks you again and in the end you're just like, fuck off, mate. Paddy Ashdown trying to put like some world music on to the speakers, <laughs> you know, being like, oh, this great track in Bosnia, you know, put it on. Sounds for empties. Yeah, exactly. There um, is something about th- about this that's a bit like the Lib Dems kind of caught on caught wind of this whole like let's get the young vote thing. Like they saw they got the memo suddenly that actually if you mobilise young voters then you could actually turn this around and just did it in the most heavy handed way possible by moving the operation into a nightclub and offering everyone legal spliffs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know, guys, there are there are nuanced ways of going about this. You don't have to uh, hey. literally. And I mean, also politically, it's very clearly driven at like the young. Because it's, yeah, as we said, legal drugs and Brexit is bad, which is pretty pretty clear demographically who that's speaking to. Although are the weed-smoking youngs also the pro-European young people? I reckon so, yeah. You think that's the overlap from the Venn diagram? Yeah. I wonder how, like, dealing with the freedom of movement will it will affect, like, weeds imports and exports into the UK. The Lib Dems have been, like, extremely salty lately. Like, have you seen some of the stuff that they've been tweeting? Like, oh, the press office, yeah. Yeah, the quite... press office. Clearly they've just gone for broke. They're like, you know what? We're not really relevant anymore, so fuck it. We're just going to do what we've always wanted to do. The press office is like actually extremely out there on Twitter. Like, no, no other press office talks the way that they would. It's because they're all stoned on Tim Farron's cush. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Angus, Sheeran, and Johan. You're the best question judges we've ever had. The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. Subscribe to us on iTunes if you fancy, and give us five stars. We'll see you again next Friday. Stay positive. no mayism. I know you journalists like to write about it.